Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Pozzaguirre, your host, an artist and educator. talked about supporting her students through this pandemic and beyond through shifting mindsets and reframing negative thinking. I loved how she talked about our role as educators, as focused around teaching students to care and to prioritize what it is that they care about, ideally moving away from stressing about homework towards empathy and care for each other. Amy puts the same passion into supporting fellow educators and artists through coaching. She shared some great advice around selling your artwork and thinking through all the questions to ask around creating art objects. It was also so interesting to hear about how she works with many media, materials, and processes, and how she conceptualizes and carries out her work. Amy Sonez was born and raised in Southern California. She loves to travel and has lived all over the United States and worked and lived in India and the United Arab Emirates. Amy holds an MFA from The Ohio State University and has given lectures and demonstrations and exhibited in the U.S., Bulgaria, England, Germany, India, and the United Arab Emirates. She has received numerous scholarships, awards, and several Greater Columbus Arts Council grants. Amy enjoys working with students of all ages and has taught at institutions including California State University Fullerton, the National School of Applied Arts St. Luca in Sofia, Bulgaria, and the Pilchuck Glass School in Stanwood, Washington. Amy has been studying emotional intelligence, meditation, and healing since 2015 in California, Hawaii, and at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Over the past decade, Amy has also worked behind the scenes on a variety of projects including managing day-to-day tasks, educational planning, curriculum development, and implementing strategic systems for the success of organizations such as Glass Access, the Torch Foundation, Pilchuck Glass School, and the Los Angeles Glass Center. In 2021, Amy founded the Mountain Movers School to support art educators and entrepreneurs in bringing more balance, joy, and confidence into all areas of their lives. Amy currently lives in Southern California where she teaches, creates, and assists organizations, other creatives, and entrepreneurs in reaching their next level. Let's hear from Amy. I am talking with Amy Soans. Hi, Amy. Thank you for being here. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I love to get started with your background. And I think about that from the perspective of the show, thinking about teaching and making art. How did you get into both of those things? And what's your journey? Well, I've always been a creative person. And when I was in high school, we had a junior achievement business and made jewelry and sold it throughout the school and with family and friends. And then I didn't really think much of it. I went away to school and 
It was a liberal arts college, Wittenberg University. And in our course catalog, they offered silver jewelry making. And I was like, wait, I need an art class and I can take this class and learn how to use a torch and all these interesting things. (laughs) And so I took that class and it really just inspired me to try something new and to keep going with it. And so I continued with that and ended up double majoring in global studies and art and then came back to California. And then I had found glass blowing while I was in undergrad, but we didn't have a program for it. I just had taken classes in it and I wanted to learn more about glass. And so I went to Cal State Fullerton and ended up doing an MA in crafts with a concentration in jewelry and metals. And then took glass blowing and sculpture classes the whole entire time I was there. And at that time also had a business. We sold jewelry in the fashion industry with the same friend that I had had the junior achievement business with. And so that was quite an adventure to go to trade shows and be getting press and magazines and, you know, learning all those different things. And then I decided that wasn't really the path I wanted to stick with. So I went and got my MFA and studied more about glass, but also, you know, everything else you can learn (laughs) about art practically, taking classes in architecture and geography. And um, Mm. so I thought I wanted to be a professor when I went to get my MFA, because I was like, oh, that would be great to work with college students. And I had been in the academic environment and really enjoyed being um, on a college campus. And then following graduation, I taught at the school and I also taught at some private studios and worked for artists. So I had a lot of different experiences as many artists do (laughs) when you have like five (laughs) jobs and you're like, oh, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do this and oh, I should also (laughs) pay my bills. So I'll also do this. (laughs) And throughout that time, I had also substitute taught in public Mm. schools and it was, you know, a nice experience to just be with different age students. Mm. And, but I never thought I was going to be a teacher in an elementary, middle or high school. And after working for artists and I've also worked with an artist in India and Dubai and was teaching in different studios throughout, you know, my earlier career. And then, just found this teaching job that I have now. So I've been teaching high school in Southern California and I teach graphic design and digital photography now. And Mm -hmm. it's just the greatest job. I didn't realize that I wanted to teach high school. Like when I first started my academic career, it wasn't my intention. And I just, I came around to it and I really, that age group, there's something really nice about that age group because they're still really, open and curious in a way that I think the older we get, maybe we have decided certain things about ourselves or Mm. what society wants us to be. (laughs) And they're still curious in a different way. So Mm, that's beautiful. I, I so relate to that sort of piecing together all the jobs thinking like, Oh, I'll be a professor. No, I think I'm gonna, I think I'll teach younger, younger students and just finding the magic in that is really Mm -hmm. beautiful. And then I know, so most of your experience was more sort of sculptural. And now Mm -hmm. I know you also do a lot of photography. Has teaching that subject been like sort of a catalyst for that shift in your work or, or 
did the shift come before you were teaching that? Well, I always took images and made Mm -hmm. images that I would use a lot of different techniques to put the images in glass uh, or make sculptural forms that repeated some of those images. Mm -hmm. And so I think, well, definitely teaching photography has influenced my practice as a photographer because Mm -hmm. photography is so immediate. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the processes I was using in glass, it's like it could take months to make a project depending on studio access and scheduling and, you know, all of the real life things (laughs) (laughs) that as humans were (laughs) trying to keep track of as well. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, photography has really become the main part of my practice at the moment, just because it's so immediate and I also really enjoy being out in nature and mm. I've always been interested in landscape photography, but I was more interested in the infrastructure and industrial structures around us that support mm. our lives. And maybe this happens with all of us as we get older is like, oh, I'd like to find something that's very calm and peaceful when the rest of the week is very busy. Um, mm. So I enjoy just, you know, taking a break and being outside and watching the sunset or, you know, admiring the forest if I can get there or when I can get there. Yeah, that's beautiful. Do you get opportunities to take students out, like out into the world to do, to photograph? Maybe not so much now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't take students out for field trips, but the students that I work with have a lot of access, I think, to the world around them. And many of them are heavily involved in athletics as well. And so some of them get to travel because of athletics or their families will Mm -hmm. take trips. And so a lot of them have a lot of opportunities. So I don't find the need or the pressure to create field trips for them because due to their schedules. Yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, it'd be great to take a group of students to Yosemite, but (laughs) that would be amazing endeavor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like a camping weekend or something. (laughs) Well, just that idea for students to get to experience natural structures that have been there for thousands of years, rather, you know, we're Mm. here in the city and it's relatively young (laughs) compared to that. Yeah. That's beautiful. And then Sticking to teaching, do you have a philosophy of teaching or a teaching style? Like, what is your style when teaching? I mean, I think my main intention as a teacher is really to facilitate students learning about themselves and Mm -hmm. them being able to tap into their creativity. And I know, you know, not that many of the students will end up becoming artists professionally in their lives, Mm -hmm. but with social media, especially now, I think so many of them are going to be able to use what they learn about photography or design in their lives. And that's really the philosophy that I take is like what you're doing here and now is going to support you in your whole life, whether or not you use it professionally, it's still going to enhance your life. And I think or actually I know one of my other intentions as a teacher is to allow students that space to discover who they are as human beings. And I don't know that that was a conscious conversation that happened when I was in high school or college, but I think that students 
now social emotional learning and emotional intelligence are so much more a part of our conversations, especially after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And there's more space to just talk about being human and what do we need as humans and how do we support each other. And so one of the other intentions I have is really to create that space where students get to learn about themselves and also interact with each other in a way that supports that growth. Yeah, that's beautiful. And yeah. make and then, <laughs> Yeah. And I feel like wrapped up in there is this idea of visual culture and that, mm-hmm. you know, Im- images sort of bombard us all the time. And they're, you know, they're going to be in this world with social media and like totally full of images. So learning how to make the images and unpack the images is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. And then I'm also curious how teaching has been for you through this pandemic. Were you completely remote and are you back in person now? Or has mm-hmm. it been like, how has that all worked for you? <laughs> well, we've all been on the biggest adventure ever, I think, in the last yeah. two years. <laughs> It's a very positive way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm working on reframing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I I mean, and well, I will mention too, I think as teachers, we experience so much and it can get, it can be really easy sometimes to just want to complain about Mm -hmm. all the things that are happening. And while it's really, I think, useful for all of us to vent and have people that can support and love us and hold us in those conversations. I don't think that that forwards us (laughs) or it doesn't forward me and it Mm. doesn't support me because then I get caught in sort of a negative loop and in being able to reframe it as an adventure (laughs) and get out of the victim mentality also helps me to support my students because some of them, you know, get really caught in this idea, well, I can't turn in my homework because something else happened to me. And it's like, no, you can turn in your homework, but you get to choose how you're going to turn in your homework and when you're going to turn in your homework. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a a lot of other conversations, but I think really in reframing things, it helps me to coach myself and to coach my students. Mm -hmm. But back to your question, (laughs) the (laughs) pandemic, when we all just it's like everyone went home and we're like, we're going home for two weeks and we're going to come back. And, you know, that was the way things started. And then we were remote throughout the end of the school year in 2020. And then we came back as faculty to do a lot of professional development to learn how to be remote better because we had gone remote with, and didn't realize like, Oh, we should be zooming with our students and have this, certain kind of schedule that mimicked the course schedule. And then not everyone had devices and Wi-Fi. you know, there was a lot Mm -hmm. of other challenges. And so we spent the summer with our school sorting those out (laughs) and bringing in more infrastructure. And then we had to stay remote for the first month of school because in the 2020 school year, just due to California regulations, And because it's a private school, they were able to sort out enough infrastructure to bring students back on campus in reduced class sizes. So we basically taught half the class in the morning and half the class in the Mm -hmm. afternoon. And when, you know, there were some times like in January that year, we stayed remote for a couple of weeks. 
and Mm -hmm. would just meet our classes one time over Zoom. And then this school year, we have come back to the place where we're back at full class sizes, just like every most other schools are back to regular class sizes. Yeah. And our classes are an average about 30 students. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just been an adventure of, you know, how much do we need to clean and everyone's wearing masks and can we go to the gym for a pep rally too? Or, you know, all the other things that make student life better on campus. Mm. Where, where does it, or what are we able to create and accomplish with students so everyone still has a high quality of life? Yeah. Yeah. It's been so much of finding that balance and kind of always chasing that balance. (laughs) Like where, what is it today? What will it be tomorrow? (laughs) Yeah. And I think that resiliency that we've all discovered we had within us during Mm -hmm. this time, it's, you know, there are a lot of challenges, but it's like, okay, well, how do we learn to just be flexible because that's, I think really what the world needs from everyone anyway, is that flexibility mm-hmm. and that grace that we can give ourselves when things aren't quite working out. And I think just many of us, and I know I definitely grew up wanting things to just fit and to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and I would always, you know, try and control things and make it work. And and realizing that it's like, oh, I don't have control over absolutely everything, and which I think that's actually been really helpful as a teacher to have more space to understand that there are things that like I could plan a lesson, but then, you know, half my kids have a sports game to go to. So they're leaving mm-hmm. class earlier, you know, things like that, that we're all doing the best we can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes me think even just like the way you're kind of talking about it and reframing and a lot of it is changing mindsets Mm -hmm. makes me think about your sort of other form of teaching that you've been doing. So you're also coaching adults. Would Mm -hmm. you want to talk a little more about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for asking. So I, in 2015, started studying emotional intelligence. And Mm -hmm. The more I learned about myself, the more I realized, like, wow, my students really need this. And Mm -hmm. then I've gotten to take different courses. And I went to the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence for a workshop and also have been part of the team that is bringing emotional intelligence and social and emotional learning to our students on campus Mm -hmm. and through different wellness programs. But the more I was involved as an adult with other adults doing that and how, you know, just how do we disseminate this information to our students? I realized how many other adults weren't comfortable, Mm. you know, discussing their own emotions or they didn't have the same kind of self-awareness that would really support them the most in delivering that kind of content to students. And it was really intimidating to many adults. And the more I realized that, and I had also been coaching through a lot of these programs, just outside of school for my own development, and realized that I would really like to support other people like myself who are artists and educators and entrepreneurs in having the skill set to grow their mindset and develop their own intuition with themselves Mm -hmm. to empower them in being comfortable and as humans interacting with younger humans. We don't always feel comfortable or have the confidence or 
the capacity because we're, you know, juggling all the other things outside of the classroom and in working with people on building their emotional intelligence, I feel like it's very empowering to myself and to the other people that I work with for them to be able to just find that flow so easily in their day or to set their intentions and go and create it or create something even more amazing than they could even imagine with their students or in their lives and in their art careers. And it's fun to win and see other people (laughs) win in their lives. And I think that what, you know, what would the world be like if everyone was able to create what they wanted to create, whether it's art or with their families. And I just think it's really fulfilling to be able to support people in that. Yeah. And so where can people find out more about your coaching? That's through the Mountain Movers School and it's mountainmoverschool.org is the website. I started the Mountain Movers School in January of 2021. And it was my intention to be able to have it be the umbrella for all of these programs that I was offering or one-on-one coaching. Mm -hmm. So yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And I love how it started, you said maybe back in, was it 2015, that you Mm -hmm. kind of started learning about this, investigating emotional intelligence for yourself as an educator and as just a human, Mm -hmm. and how that led to this interest in sharing that with other adults as well, Mm -hmm. as well as your students. Yeah. Yeah. And when I started taking those workshops, it was through this group called uh, Mastery and Transformational Training. It's here in LA, but there's other Mm -hmm different groups and schools and other cities as well and companies and nonprofits. And when I would go to these workshops, it wasn't just for educators. It was people from any career path, Mm. but it was really, and I was in my mid thirties when I started going to these workshops and it was so eye opening to see how many of us, you know, and people were younger than me and older than me and, you know, had so much professional experience, but we didn't always have the, ability to speak our minds clearly, or we didn't always, you know, there's a lot of fear, I think, and in our culture, too, there's a lot of fear surrounding that vulnerability. And it was just really freeing to understand it's like, wow, you know, there are tools out there that can support people in, you know, if you want to be a millionaire, then, you know, who do you get to be to create that for yourself? And so Mm -hmm. if you want to teach you know, elementary school kids in a really challenging environment, how can you be successful in that? So mm-hmm. the the skill set is transferable across any career path or any age, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I hear in a lot of the talking about the fear and the perfectionism, those things come up for me. I've been to a few workshops talking about anti-racism, anti-bias, mm-hmm. sort of those trainings. And those things come up there as characteristics of white supremacy culture, which is from work by Tima Okun and Kenneth Jones called Dismantling Racism, a workbook for social change groups. But there's a list of these sort of characteristics and the things included are so many of what you know, what you've talked about as sort of these barriers or these challenges for us to get past this idea of perfectionism, that one hits home so hard for me. <laughs> Fear, individualism, like the idea that you're on your own, 
this defensiveness, this like sense of urgency, all of those things are so tied into the structure of our society. It makes it really tricky to get around them and to combat those things. Well, and I think one of the things that I really appreciated about these workshops is that the workshops that I attended were so diverse. Mm -hmm. And I think that if our country is experiencing a lot of challenging things. And I think that in all the challenges that we are facing in our country and in our schools, the more that students of every background can support each other and relate to each other and find empathy with each other and build relationships with each other, well, that them being empowered to care and love for one another is going to transform the world we live in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that happens through our work in anti-racism. It happens through our work with inclusion. And I think one of the main jobs as a teacher is teaching students to care. Hmm. And it's, you know, are we teaching students to care about turning in their homework? Are we teaching students to care about getting engaged with the lesson that we've worked so hard to prepare for them? Are we teaching students to care about their parents and their families Mm -hmm. and to care about their sports teams and their teammates? And if someone gets injured, how can I support them? And the more that students care and have an awareness of each other and the environment that they're in and want to give back and make it better when they see something that needs to be changed, then we all win from that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it helps students lift themselves out of their socioeconomic backgrounds, if that's what they want to create for themselves. And it helps them to provide for their families. And, you know, we're teaching young people how to be adult people. Mm Mm-hmm. And how can we be successful in that? Yeah. Yeah. I loved, I think it was Abby Burhanyu, another interview, but friend who I spoke to who said, you know, we're just teaching people to be drivers in cars on the road. And how are they going to respond to other drivers in cars on the road? (laughs) Will they share the road? Will they be like, you know, the aggressive rude honking driver? Yeah, I think that's so important, right? And you were talking about white supremacy. And, you know, so much of that is embedded in society. And it's whether even we recognize it or not. Mm -hmm. And just like you mentioned, all those, the lists that you read through, the more we're aware of the smaller ways in which that's a part of our culture, then Mm -hmm. we can change it. And it, it's also... I think that sense of entitlement that a lot of people have, and that may not just be white people in our society, it may be, Mm -hmm. you know, rich people, or, you know, there's a lot of different categories of people. And, you know, even teenagers feel entitled to use their phones in class (laughs) when you're trying to teach. So there's a lot of different kinds of entitlement. But when we realize our own sense of entitlement, and what that is, then it helps us to share the road. Mm, Yeah, I love that way of thinking about what we're doing as teachers, that we're teaching humans to be the best humans they can be in this world.
Hi, folks. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I'm jumping in to share one of the tools that I love. If you're thinking about starting your own podcast or video series, Zencaster is super helpful. Zencaster is an all-in-one podcast production suite that gives you studio quality audio and video without needing all the technical know-how. It records each guest locally and then uploads crystal clear audio and video right into the suite so you have high quality raw materials to work with. You can try it out for free at zen.ai slash teachingartistpod and if you do decide to sign up for a pro account, you get 30% off with this link and you'll be helping support this show. I love Zencaster because it records two separate tracks to make editing easier, and all I have to do is send a link to the guest. It can also handle multiple guests, and there are options for audio only, recording audio while viewing video, or recording both audio and video. I usually opt for just audio so I can record in my PJs. (laughs) Now the secret's out. The link to get 30% off pro and throw some support our way is zen.ai slash teachingartistpod. I'll throw that link in the show notes as well so you can try Zencaster. I would love to get more into your artwork as well and just hear more about your work. Could you maybe describe your work? as if someone hasn't seen it and everyone should go check it out. (laughs) But could you give us a description? Yeah, thank you. My early work, I think I was really interested in mimicking and recreating different parts of the infrastructure that supports us in our daily lives. So Mm -hmm. I grew up near an oil refinery. It's no longer there. But I would pass by this and it was just such a massive structure. And, you know, seeing these different buildings and then, you know, as you get older, you realize like, oh, you know, this is where electricity comes from or this is, you know, Mm. where gas comes from and how everything sort of fits together. I was really fascinated by the sort of networking of those structures and bridges and cranes and, you know, trains and the port system and how are we importing all these goods from everywhere. And so just sort of seeing all of those things as a physical manifestation of the infrastructure that support our lifestyle. So, you know, Mm -hmm. these really ugly towers that, well, they, other people consider them ugly, but I just thought they were so beautiful that Mm -hmm. support all the electrical infrastructure. It's like everyone loves charging their computer or their cell phone. (laughs) You know, like we all have that entitlement, right? Or that expectation Mm -hmm. of like, I could plug it in and it's going to (laughs) happen. Or like I can go to the gas station and there's going to be gas in the tank Mm -hmm. underneath the gas station to put into my car. (laughs) Yeah. But where does that all come from? Yeah. And so I really, you know, documented a lot of these different structures. And like I even got to, when I lived in Ohio, go visit a coal fired power plant through some connections that I had made and just seeing that inner working of 
everything really was fascinating to me. And I'm still interested in that. But now I'm also interested, I would say, in the inner workings of human beings and Mm. our relationship with nature. And so a lot of my work now is more focused on the structures, you know, like trees and forests and, Mm. uh, or maybe seeing how, you know, that place where the urban city meets nature Mm -hmm. at the beach or in another location. And so, you know, how are we working together or against each other, maybe, you know, humans versus nature and that relationship? Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting shift. And I love that idea of the infrastructure around us, the like what's sort of the unseen or like underground even above ground, just the things we don't think about, but then also shifting that to like the infrastructure inside us, the the inner workings Mm -hmm. of us. It's a really interesting pairing or just way of shifting your mind. Yeah. Yeah, And I think a lot of it is a mindset shift that I personally have gone through. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I started studying meditation and, you know, it's like when you're in nature or you go to a park, it's like, it, it might, be a quiet place and you might find that same sense of peace or create that within yourself that you can create through meditation. But being in the natural environment, we as humans are able to connect with a different part of ourselves versus when we're in the built or industrial or urban environment. And Mm -hmm. as I've become more self-aware, I've realized that that's the part of myself that I want to feed and develop as opposed Mm -hmm. to the part of myself that, you know, when I, as many teachers can probably relate, it's like, there's a lot of things to do. And sometimes it can cause a lot of anxiety, you know, schedules changing and lesson planning and just preparing for different things. And then having to manage the new schedule and other expectations around observations and What do parents need for their students? Am I communicating properly through, like we use Canvas at my school and a Mm -hmm. lot of different schools have different systems where they're disseminating their curriculum to their students. And that can take your mind in a certain place if that's all you think about. Whereas the more I've developed my practice of uh, meditation, then I'm able to like release a lot of that information and that chatter that I experience in my mind. And I know that, you know, as human beings, we're, we all have these internal conversations with ourselves, right? And so as an artist, I'm finding the place that feeds the internal conversation that mm-hmm. I want to have with myself and feeds that awe and wonder and inspiration that I want to experience. And I want to share that through my artwork with other people. Yeah, uh, that's beautiful. And then is part of your coaching, like when you work with other artists, is part of that helping them kind of find that? Yeah, my intention as a coach is really to support people in creating what they want to create. So if Mm -hmm. I think that the main part of that is like, first, you know, you create your vision, like, what is it that you want for yourself? Do you want to earn more money? Do you want to be in a school that you feel supported and honored to be at? or empowered to just do the job that you were hired to do? (laughs) (laughs) Or do you want to be able to be satisfied with the way that you do your job and then also bring in the skills and the feelings that you want to have in your life outside of the classroom? Mm -hmm. And so once 
everyone decides what it is that they want, then we work on building the skills to get there. And part of that is the mindset and the organization and also finding that space within ourselves to be creative. Because a lot of times I think, you know, you can do anything. Like everyone is powerful in their own way to create what they want to create. But if you don't believe that you're powerful and able to create that because you're stuck on the list of like, look, there's so much to do, then it takes longer. Or, you know, we all have our coping mechanisms, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And sometimes our coping mechanisms, like watching eight hours of Netflix, you know, at once is not the best coping mechanism to get us to where we want to be. And so in identifying what's in my way Mm. can help shift, like, why am I choosing this thing that's getting in my way when I know I really want something else? So Mm -hmm. identifying that and having that self-awareness and then being empowered to remove the blocks ourselves. Yeah. And that's that's the other thing too about coaching and even teaching with students. It's like, it's not going to be powerful for anyone if someone's telling you, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's Mm going to be powerful when you can see like, this is the goal. And how do you want to get to that goal? And Mm -hmm. it's a question or there's, you know, as a coach or a teacher, I'm able to evoke other people's answers and solutions for directing themselves to that goal. Yeah. And that that goal is also self-determined that they're figuring like, what is my goal? (laughs) What do I actually want? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, with a lot of assignments and projects that we're working on, I always try and give students like, this is what I want, but it's kind of vague in a way that it gives students that space to figure it out because having that ability to figure things out Mm. is transferable to anything. And that critical thinking and assessment and whether it's, you know, as a teacher, we're all trying to figure things out or, you know, (laughs) people go on to other career paths or being in the studio. I think that's something that we learned as artists in the studio. It's like, here's this assignment and what is your solution for it? Mm -hmm. But how do you teach someone else to go through that process that you maybe had to learn and took a lot of, you took so many different routes to get there. Then how do you empower students to have that ability in a very like succinct way. And then mm-hmm. as a coach, how do you empower people to transfer that or develop that for themselves? Cause that's the muscle that we can all use. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it is a, a muscle that takes some time to develop and just practice. Yeah. So putting people in situations where they practice that. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. also in practicing, like knowing it's practice, Mm-hmm. It's okay. Like it might not work out. Yeah. It, you might fail. And having that, you know, in being a perfectionist, if you fail, it could be the worst thing in the world. But mm-hmm. if there's this growth mindset of like, just fail faster, then you move <laughs> yeah. through that, those emotions and that disappointment or self judgment or whatever it is. And I think as a teacher, the more that my students develop that or as a coach, the more that my clients develop that then we're all creating the success that we want quicker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then I, I know you mentioned some of the more like concrete tools that you use and that you help people sort of figure out what works for them. Do you have any organizational tools that you want to share? Like 
you know, the best tools that, that work for you, that you love. What advice would you have for people there? Well, if we're just talking about what's available through technology, I mm. love Google Drive and all the yeah. tools that Google Drive has developed and created like Google Forms. And there's so many different ways that those things interact. And, mm -hmm. you know, whether you're a student and you're trying to turn in your PDF through Canvas, or you're an artist and you're trying to keep track and you have to use your phone because you're in between like 10 different things. And, yeah. you know, then when you're at home, you can work on your computer and you know, just navigating all the different devices we use, like Google Drive has really supported me so much in creating what I've created for myself as an artist and an educator and a coach. So I think that I would totally recommend all those things. And I think another thing that's been really useful as a coach and an entrepreneur is Canva. Mm, yeah, and definitely. just like, it's making design accessible to people in such a simple and easy way. And I mean, I love the Adobe suite and all that Adobe has created, but not everyone wants to subscribe to Adobe and take the time to learn how to use Photoshop and InDesign mm -hmm. or Illustrator. And I think what Canva has created is really incredible. And also Guy Raz from How I Built This interviews mm -hmm. the creator of Canva. She's an Australian woman. And... I totally recommend that episode as a side note. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I listened to that a long time ago. Was yeah, really I'll good. look for it and yeah. send it to you if you want to put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, those are fantastic tools. So useful. And then are there non-tech tools you would want to share? Or did you have more tech? More I was tech. just trying to think about more tech tools. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will say that our school is an iPad school or an Apple Distinguished School. And they've been using iPads at my school since before I was a teacher at that school, since the first year that Apple came out with that program. And the technology and the different apps that people are developing for the iPad, I think a lot are available for Android and other devices. But just I recommend a lot of but like the Autodesk sketchbook app is great. Mm -hmm. And that one's free. Yeah. And the Adobe, Adobe's shifting some of their free apps to paid apps with the Photoshop mm -hmm. and Photoshop mix and Lightroom, but they're just so easy and intuitive to use with students. And also as artists, who are trying to like, I've got to apply to this show and I need this to be this and this and just creating digitally is so much easier and accessible through a lot of these apps. Yeah, like getting, I feel like one of the things I spend way too much time on is just organizing all the photos of my work and like having this, this call asks for this size and this call asks for this size and okay, this one's this many pixels and this one's this many megabytes or whatever, like all the different requirements and having just like many versions of every image. So having technology that helps you make those and organize those is helpful. Yeah, I, I really think like Google Drive and I mean, even like I do have a, a MacBook Pro and just the Finder app and just mm -hmm. being able like, 
I don't know if you ever made org charts for anything before, but working in admin, I used to have to update org charts and think about Mm. the, you know, that sort of tree structure of where are the things and like, what's the, you know, my main folder and just being able to manage like file management in that way is Mm -hmm. I think really helpful. It's just like anything is like, what's the goal and the vision and how do I want to maintain that for myself? And, you know, also giving ourselves permission in that time when we can't do like we're doing the best we can. And if things get a little unorganized, it's okay, you're going to find it. You know, just use the search button. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah, I love that giving yourself that grace. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another question came up for me just in, you know, hearing about the ideas behind your work. And then knowing that you work across so many different media, I'm curious how you decide, like, I have this idea for this body of work. Is it, is the idea that it's, that idea is conducive to photography and that's going to be photo? Or is it like, well, that's going to maybe start as photo and then that might morph into glass or sculpture of some sort. And all those media are going to be wrapped up in this sort of series or this idea. How does that work for you? I think it's really based on what the concept is and Mm -hmm. what am I trying to communicate? And also quite frankly, like what kind of studio access do I have at that time or what's in my budget? Yeah. And the budget could be time. The budget could be money and just deciding based on that. So I think a lot of work I've made has been based on studio access Mm -hmm. and the amount of time I have to create the work that I'm creating. And as far as the ideas go, I just, I think I was so fascinated by all the learning of the material and the learning in the processes and how does this technique work. And now that I am where I am, I can reflect and see, you know, this image could be used in this way in five different ways and five different materials, but how do I want my audience to interact with it? And what do I want them to experience? So I think with using glass, and I've also worked with video projection as well. And, you know, what kind of do I want them to experience light in a way that the materials can create, whereas something like a digital print, you know, it's very flat. And (laughs) it's just a different experience that the viewer will have with the work. Yeah, I love that, like all those considerations, the reality of like, do I have the resources and, you know, materials and space and time, all of it, but then also really considering, well, what do I want the viewer, like, what do I want the impact of this work to be? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that makes sense. part of it too is this, so working with glass for so long, one thing that's fantastic about glass, and I mean, even there was just an article about a piece of glass that's like 5,000 years old that was just discovered mm-hmm. and intact. Do I care if it lasts 5,000 years? Or right. is it okay that it's something like I've been fascinated with NFTs lately and mm-hmm. this idea that really anything in the digital space, it's not really real, mm-hmm. but it is real. Because in our minds, we make it real, but it's not tangible. It's not like this, you know, ceramic cup that I have that I can hold between my hands and, you know, is a vessel and it carries this tea that I'm drinking, you know, so what, what matters to me? Like, do I care that it's a tangible thing and a functional thing? Or do I want to live in that space 
where someone gets to engage with the work because they're imagining it and they're experiencing it in a totally different way. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Ooh, I had, <laughs> now I'm like, I'm going to have to ponder this a little bit. <laughs> well, um, it's a huge question, right? I mean, you is. can spend years like thinking about it. <laughs> Ooh, before you brought up the, the NFT idea and yeah, that's like a deeper, a deeper conversation. We might have to come back to that one. I was thinking, do you ever have sort of ideas that you're like, this needs to be glass, but at this moment right now, I don't have access to the studio or the time. Do you have sort of these back burner ideas that sit and wait for a little while until you have that access? Oh, yeah, I think, <laughs> I, I mean, this is maybe, you know, people like, what's their strength and what's a weakness? Like one of my weaknesses is that I have a lot of ideas <laughs> and I want to <laughs> make them all. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I get distracted and maybe I'm not able to make the things that I want to make in the best way possible. Or mm. I spend a lot of time developing these ideas, but then they are still on the back burner. So mm -hmm. I think that's one thing I do really appreciate about working digitally is it can be immediate in that way. Mm -hmm. Whereas working with glass can sometimes take a long time. I mean, glass, like glass blowing is very immediate. Like you can, yeah. like once you start the piece, you've got to finish the piece to a certain point because you've got yeah. to put it in an annealer and it's got to cool slowly <laughs> mm -hmm. overnight. Otherwise it will break. But then you can take that piece once it's come out of the annealer and you can cut it and polish it and add an image to it and then even pick it back up in the hot shop and change it. And, you know, there's a lot of different processes that can happen over multiple sessions with working with it. And I think I love all those processes and they're, it's fun because you're working with other people in the studio as well. And it's, you know, there are certain things you can do by yourself, but a lot of things you really need to work with other people. So that experience is fantastic, but sometimes it's also nice to just be able to control everything. And like, I can do this at midnight on my computer and I don't need to schedule and hire someone else to be there too. Yeah. It's great to have both ways of working sort of in your wheelhouse. <laughs> I am curious too. I feel like this could be really helpful for people listening to here, if you have any sort of tips around selling and showing your work, I know you have that entrepreneurial sort of thread going through even back from high school. So if you have any tips you'd want to share around selling your work, I feel like that would be really helpful. Yeah, I think as an object maker, the question is, you know, what am I going to do with this object after I make it? And right. what's the marketplace that it fits in with? And how do I want to interact with that market? Because for a long time, I made, you know, one of a kind objects. And I would show them in galleries that sold one of a kind objects or exhibit them in different shows in an academic environment or different galleries in different cities. But then those objects might come back to me. And then, you know, it's like they can be sold on Etsy or on my website or through a gallery that has space to have it in their inventory that sits in their gallery. And they're going to, you know, have the infrastructure to have it on their website mm -hmm. and available for sale. So I think the number one question for artists is, you know, what are you going to do with the object after you make it? And who do you want to experience it? 
And then once people decide, and I guess also part of that is, is it a functional object or is it something that you can hang on a wall and admire, which is fun. It has its own function, but it's not the same as, you know, making goblets or ceramic Mm. dinnerware. And Mm. so, you know, what, what is the thing and where is it going? (laughs) Like what kind of life will it have? And then deciding, well, where is the marketplace that people can connect with it? So I've done a lot of different trade shows for the fashion industry. And then, you know, we used to do this trade show. One of the artists I worked for, it was at the Dubai World Trade Center. And so the things that we made were going to be used by architects and designers and other artists. So it's like, Mm -hmm. who else is going to use the work that is made? And so just answering those questions, I think then Mm -hmm. helps build the other infrastructure that you need in order to get there. So, okay, do you need a website for this? Or can you just put it on Etsy and use your Instagram to connect with your audience and Mm -hmm. clients? Or are you going to use big cartel because it fits better with that audience? Or are you trying to get gallery representation in New York City because you like the idea and that feeds your ego to feel (laughs) like I'm represented by a gallery in New York city, like answering all those questions, Mm. I think really helps. And then using the infrastructure. I mean, we're so lucky now that it's like Instagram, like people don't need to have a website and they don't need to have a gallery if they don't want to. Yeah. Because you're able to just sell direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. And so answering those questions, I think really helps. And then filling in the the blanks with the technology that's at hand. Yeah, that's great. That's, I feel like really helpful to think about what is it that you're making? Are you making paintings that hang on a wall? And how big are they? Are they like, where would they live? You know, Mm -hmm. who would buy them? Are they for hotels? Are they for interior designers? Or are they for, is there like a certain type of person who might want them in their home? And, you know, Even to me, a big part of that is thinking about the budget. Like, how am I, what, at what price am I actually earning something for making this stuff? (laughs) Like, not only paying for the materials, but also paying for my time and who can afford that? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really important question, actually, because I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I have three degrees in art, but that wasn't (laughs) something that we talked a lot about in the studio It was touched upon, but it's like, you know, if you spend 120 hours on a project, what are you paying yourself per hour? And what Mm -hmm. is the value of the thing? And if the value of the thing is $2,000, and that's what your cut of it is, then that means that a gallery is going to turn around and sell it for 4,000. Like, is that actually marketable for $4,000? And do you have the reputation that supports that? So I think, you know, It's just, there's a lot of questions to answer and are you, or maybe as an artist, are you doing this for your own mental health and to support Mm -hmm. your own wellness? And are you okay with only earning a thousand dollars because the market is going to support it for 2000 and that's okay because Mm -hmm. then you're growing your audience and it's going to be seen in a hotel and, you know, it's just answering all the questions. Yeah. Or the advice that I've gotten that's a little bit disheartening sometimes, but thinking of it sort of this like longer end goal, this long game, like we're not 
just making art this year. You're making art for a lifetime, potentially. And if you would like eventually for that piece to sell for $4,000, but it's just not there yet, like your reputation isn't there yet, maybe today it's 2000 and like in five or 10 years, it'll be up to that 4000 mark mm-hmm. and just like allowing it to grow that way. Yeah, and developing that. But also as an artist, knowing that, you know, maybe then if you're building your reputation, then are you willing to start making smaller work because it's more accessible Mm -hmm. for your clientele? And then you still do make certain larger pieces, but splitting your capacity because you have that end goal in mind, you know, or it's like maybe instead of making five pieces this month or five pieces this week, I'm going to make fewer because I'm going to take some of that time and invest it in my own social media marketing, Mm. which will increase my following and increase my clientele and spend time connecting with people in other ways. So it benefits your studio practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many things to consider. Thank you. That's really helpful. Getting to our kind of wrap up questions. So there's two questions I always like to ask. One is, what are you curious about right now? I'm curious about what is my place in the world and how can I make the world a better place? And mm-hmm. am I is my time better spent investing in my own self-development or is my time better spent working as a coach to empower other artists who are mm-hmm. able to empower people in their audience with the beautiful work they make? Is my time better spent in becoming a better teacher so then I can empower my students because then I'm working with, you know, 120 or 150 of them a year. And if they turn out to be great human beings because Mm -hmm. of what I was able to play a small part in their life, then, you know, you start doing multiplication and that (laughs) like is a greater (laughs) impact. So how am I finding my place to support other people in all of us transforming the world we live in to make it better for Mm -hmm. everyone is one of the biggest things I'm curious in right now. And I'm also curious too in my meditation practice, because I think that Mm -hmm. allows me to find a lot of those answers for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. And then fun kind of silly question. What is your favorite food? My favorite food probably hands down is chocolate (laughs) yep (laughs) because there's so much chocolate in this world that's made Mm -hmm. by amazing and creative people and also even I think chocolate as it and and other like confectionaries as like art forms and I don't know if anyone watches a lot of like things on Instagram or YouTube of like professionals make some really incredible things so I'm also sort of, it's like, I like to eat chocolate, but I'm also fascinated by it. What can you do with it? Because it becomes sculpture essentially. Yeah. As well. Ooh. So. Yeah. We got, we went down this rabbit hole. I think my daughter found on YouTube, somebody making hard candies, but the way mm-hmm. they're similar because I've been doing all this work with polymer clay, similar to mm-hmm. the polymer clay canes. So you build mm-hmm. up this image and make a long tube of it and slice it. And I guess maybe similar to glass. Glass might have that ability as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think having worked with glass, then working also, like there's so many baking techniques and mold making, you know, and mold making and ceramics and glass, like they're all related to one another and working with positive Mm -hmm. 
imagery and negative making negative mold you know it's like all the they go hand in hand so yeah yeah the intersection of food and art yes seeing that in candies I love it (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and I've also made art projects actually with hard candy so Mm -hmm. I was learning how to make the candy myself and use different molds Mm -hmm. that I had made from 3d printed objects so I think you know there's a great intersection between food and art yeah definitely Ooh, now it's another rabbit hole to jump down (laughs) I know definitely (laughs) Is there anyone that you would want to thank or give a shout out to? I thought about this question. I saw it on your list. <laughs> I, I would just really like to thank, there are so many people that personally I would love to thank that the list is so long, but I really want to thank all of the educators that I've studied with mm-hmm. because I think they have opened spaces and doors for me to discover what I want to create and do and who I am. I want to also thank my students because I think they're a great reflection for myself of a lot of questions and ways of seeing the world. So yeah, I'd also like to thank just a lot of friends and family and people I've interacted with over the years because they've taught me so much about myself and it's been great to just spend time and be with them as well. So, and I also, of course, want to thank you for inviting me and for holding space for the community of artists who teach in this world, because I think a lot of us get to see ourselves reflected in your interviews with other artists, mm-hmm. teachers, and it's really nice to feel part of a larger community that. I think there's, I I did some research. I think there's like 80,000 people teaching art in the world, give or take. And so think, I think it's in the world. Maybe that's just in this country. I should look it up and I'll send it to you. But, you know, thinking like I'm not the only one is really helpful. So thank you for holding that space Mm -hmm. to know that, you know, I'm part of a larger group that also cares and wants to be creative and, work with other people to bring that to the world. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you so much. It's always really heartwarming to hear when this work actually does what it's intended to do, which is just that, like, you know, make us all feel a little less alone in these sort of silos of the classroom, the studio, you can feel so alone there. So yeah. Last thing Yeah. Where can listeners connect with you online? I know you've shared the Mountain Movers School, but what are your, you know, what's your website? Where can people find you? And I will link to everything as well. Thank you. People can find me on my website is amysones.com. And my Instagram is also amysones for my personal work and to connect with me. And then the Mountain Movers School is on the Mountain Movers School on Instagram and mountainmoverschool.org for their website. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy. This was wonderful. Yes, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate all the other art teachers and yourselves and what you're doing to support us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. 
And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.